0: Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to a special reef-keeping episode of the Talking Reef Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Weatherly. This is the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. Each week, I'll bring you a topic on marine fish or reef keeping, and once a month, I'll bring you an interview with a columnist from Reefkeeping Magazine, found at reefkeeping.com. This week, we are joined by Brian Plankus. He's here to talk with us about nudi nudibranchs. For those of you that don't know Brian, he's received his B.S. in Natural Resources and Environmental Science and an M.S., in educational technology from Purdue University is currently working towards do- as a doctoral student in instructional technology at the University of Houston. Brian set up his first saltwater tank, a 29-gallon in 1999 and currently keeps a 75-gallon mixed reef tank. He has also spent over 200 hours volunteering for the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago, Illinois and at the Marine Mammal Stranding Network in Galveston, Texas. In addition to writing for Reefkeeping Magazine, Brian has also been an active member and presenter in the Marine Aquarium and Reef Society of Houston, also known as MARSH, and was involved with the Chicago Marine Aquarium Society. Uh, again, Brian is joining us today to talk about his observations on pest anemone predation on, uh, by an under-researched Aelid
1: nudibranch.
0: Brian, welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast.
1: Thanks, Rob. A pleasure to be able to chat with you.
0: Great. Now, can we start off? Uh, why don't you start off telling me a little bit about this uh, nudibranch that you found and how you came across it in your tank?
1: Sure, Rob. Basically, back in August, I was doing my nightly search of my tank after lights out. Uh, I don't know if you're uh, aware of it or not, but I did a, a previous article on, on cirrhaline isopods, and I was I was hunting for them, and I and I came across this uh, this worm on my on my glass of my tank, and I was like, "What's that?" And so. I uh, took it out of the tank, and I placed it in a, a little quarantine cup in my sump, and uh, that's how I came across the first one, and the and the second one just a few days later.
0: Excellent, which kind of brings up a, a good point as we go through this, that uh, just because you don't know what it is doesn't mean it's a bad thing. So uh, Now, at this point, can you kind of take a minute and tell me exactly what an ailded nudibranch is? Uh, it's not the actual
1: species, right? Uh, Yes, Rob, you're correct. It's not the actual species. An Aeolid nudibranch is actually a a member of the family Aeolididae, and basically any of the Aeolid nudibranchs in that family are consumers of basically stinging animals, uh, corals, anemones, hydroids, things like that. And the the really uh, cool thing about them is that once they've eaten these animals, they can then use the stinging cells from their prey as their own defense. Okay, so, cool. So
0: the Aelid, is that actually just a, a short name for the, the genus of these species then?
1: It's, uh, it's a short name for the family. For the family, okay. And uh, I should point out that uh, I'm not a nudibranch expert. I just play one on podcasts. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and we appreciate and, it. Yes. And the specific... Aeolid, I found in my tank, is probably a, what is called a Spirilla neapolitana, and that is only a tentative ID, because uh, ID is not always easy on Right, people. right.
0: Now, the, just uh, another quick question. Now, what are some of the other possibly known nudibranchs that are in this family that uh, general hobbyists might know about, just for comparison?
1: Well um within this within this family are are probably the um and here's where I'm probably going to uh slaughter the pronunciation <laughs> That's okay but, we um, <laughs> we're good at that here. <laughs> there's there's uh there's a Bergia nudie branch which is very common. Well it's it's usually tank bread and it, it's it's really the one that's most commonly seen in the hobby. Uh there there are some other ones within the family but they're they're Typically not seen very much.
0: Now, the berga, uh, bergia, those are the ones that people commonly use for Aptasia uh, control, correct?
1: Yes. Uh, th- they have, that is their primary and only prey, actually. They're, they're a very specialized predator, and they only eat Aptasia, so that's yeah. why they're so popular.
0: Yep, and I think we're going to get into uh, a little bit more about the feeding natures a little bit later. But before we get into that, what about identification? Um, Are are nudibranchs in general hard to identify? And how does this species fit into the general ID ability of nudibranchs as a whole? Is this one specifically hard or easier than others that we normally
1: see? Okay, well, that's a good point. Uh, Nudibranchs are generally hard to identify, Uh, some of them do have very specific uh, color patterns or appendages on their body that make them easy to identify. But I think as a whole, they're, they're pretty difficult to identify. Even if you have a clear or crisp picture, it's it's still difficult to identify. And really, uh, the experts recommend that you dissect the animal in order to get it down to species.
0: Right, and, and that's common it, with
1: a lot of invertebrates, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And as far as this particular nudibranch that I found, if it really is Barilla neapolitana, uh, th- those are a. It is a highly variable species, and and that's why it's so difficult to be really sure if if this really is the that species.
0: And by that highly variable, you mean that two specimens of the same species could look different.
1: Yes. Right. And, and uh, there the. This particular species uh, appears to be spread uh, quite a bit around the world: uh, Mediterranean Sea, Hawaii, uh, Florida, and so in each location they look a little bit different. So you're, it, it's just it just makes it difficult to be sure without the dissection. Right, I gotcha.
0: Okay, now let's talk a minute about uh, the care and feeding of of these critters. Do we need to? You know, if, if we find them in our tank and we and we specifically want to care for them or, or uh, you know keep them captive, uh, do we need to make sure that we have specific food or any certain water or tank conditions for them to to survive okay?
1: Yes, um, they they are they are pretty hardy creatures, but there there are really three things you really need to pay attention to in order to in order to keep these successfully, and the most critical one is food. Um, the Bronx are known to only eat a very narrow range of food for each species. And I found these in my tank uh, nearly starved. And they had uh, quite a few different species of coral that they could have easily uh, been eating. But, the, you know, since they came out nearly starved, they obviously weren't consuming anything within right. the tank. Um, and as far as the, the testing I've done, they, they seem to eat both aptasia and um, again, we go with the pronunciation here, but I think it's Mahano anemones. Gotcha. And so um, this this was known within the uh, within the literature, but it's it was not really commonly known within the hobby. And, and so you really need to, if you find these, if you think you have one of these in your tank, um, you need to find the Aptasia or Mahano anemones in order to have a chance at them uh, surviving. And you have to feed them pretty quick because in the literature I was reading, uh, if they go without food for more than two or three weeks, then uh, they're, they're not, they have over a 50% mortality rate. So you have to get them fed pretty quick. So that's the most important one. And then you need to be careful of the equipment in your tank. Really if you're, if you're going to want to try to keep these, you need to set up a dedicated system for them. Because you, you need to avoid powerheads or any other type of pump, and uh, a tall overflow could easily, if they were to get sucked into that, they could uh, get damaged from that. Gotcha.
0: Now, one if, of the things that I wanted to mention real quick is in the reefkeeping article that you, that you did that's going to be released this month, you have various pictures in there that can help people identify if, if they think that they might have this or they're interested in getting more information, you do have various pictures there, Correct.
1: Yes, I I do have pictures in the article, uh, but you do need to be careful with pictures. Uh, They're they're not really the best way, Um, but you can at least get an idea if it's close or not. Right. Um, And then what I would recommend there is to get crisp, clear pictures and to either uh, go on to my author forum on on, uh, Reef Central and post those or to go to the Sea Slug uh, forum. Uh, run by Bill Rudman. And okay, and I'll put a link to
0: that site in the show, to your yeah. author form, and to the C-Slug uh, website in the show notes for this episode.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. And and Bill Rudman, he's definitely an expert. And, and if he doesn't know how to identify, it, he's got connections that can. So okay, cool. Um, again, as far as you can go with pictures.
0: Gotcha. And we, a lot of us are at least a little familiar with that. Um, specifically dealing with the corals and stuff like that. You know, corals can be very, you know, similarly hard to to identify just from images because of the the variance that they can handle. Now, one of the things that I did want to ask just, you know, out of the blue a little bit here is, you know, we've been talking about, you know, keeping these and caring for them. Is this this something that we should go after? Why would somebody want to specifically keep these, uh, you know, in their tank? I mean, is there certain, you know, benefits? I don't think that we've we specifically talked about that.
1: Well, um, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily recommend people to go out and try to, if they were to ever become commercially avail- available, uh, go out and try to purchase these and keep these. Um, because, uh, they're really, the, their, their importance, I think, within the hobby is that they can consume the pest and enemies, Aftasia and Mahano. And so, if, if, Somebody has a, a very uh, large reef tank that's heavily infested with these anemones. Then it, it might be make sense to uh, to get these to try to to get rid of them. But um, I don't know if you're familiar, but uh, Stephen Pro. Uh, wrote an article recently about the overuse of biological controls within aquariums. Right, and, yes. And that was something and, that I
0: was going to bring up. Um yeah. uh, just real quick is, you know, a lot of people specifically with the, the Bergia nudibranchs, people will get them spe- you know specifically to control Aptasia problems and the same thing with like the blue velvet uh, nudibranchs, people will get to control flatworms. Yes. And the important mm-hmm. thing for everybody to remember here is Nudibranchs, as you mentioned, Brian, a little bit earlier, are very, very, very specific eaters in that they, there's usually only one, maybe two items that they will consume. And if you get these to put them in your tank to control this pest that you have, they'll do mm-hmm. a real good job of, of taking care of it. But they'll eat themselves out of a food source and will starve <laughs> to death.
1: Yes, and, and typically some anemones will be left over and then and then they'll, the the enemies will just come back and right. that's where you really need to set up a uh, it's it's really not a good idea to uh to set them up just you know throw them in your reef tank uh it, it's a, it's a good idea to set up a dedicated system and rotate your rock in there and just let them eat everything off that rock and then you, that rock can go back in your tank and um this is where it actually could be very useful for a reef club to get if if these were to ever become available to get a couple for the club, and right set, yeah that's set a good up point. like a set up a rock cleaning house yeah whatever whenever people have these uh anemones, and then they could just bring their rocks over and uh and really, then that one house that keeps them can also uh co culture some of the anemones, so you always have a food supply for these guys right, because, and that's a great
0: great idea, I like that, yeah. So, for people that have local clubs, you know, this is there's an idea for you. And I know that within my local area, something that has I've commonly seen through like local forums and stuff is people will pick up like the 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 bergi or bergia nudibranchs, and you know, to to control their uh, their aptasia problems. And what I'll usually see is when they're done with them, they'll post on the forums that okay, you know, I'm. Done with it, if somebody's got this problem i'm going to give this away to whoever needs it, and they kind of pass from person to person, which probably isn't the best you know stress wise for the for the the brank but um, at least that there' people are being a little bit more responsible and not letting it starve to death but I do like yeah. the idea about having the the dedicated cleaning tank form that's a that's a good idea yeah
1: and and uh and at least people are thinking about. Uh, passing them on rather than you know just,
0: just letting throw, them starve, throw, throwing
1: them in their reef tank, letting them starve, and then their aptasia problem comes back anyway. Right, yeah, kind of a waste.
0: Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about the, the reproductive natures of these. I know that many people commonly uh, breed the, the Bergia nudibranchs. Can you talk a little bit about the reproduction of of these and whether or not at this point they can be you know tank raised or aquacultured?
1: Yes, I, I can uh, definitely talk about that. Um, yes, Bergia bur- are uh, commonly bred. There's quite a few breeders, so there, there's a pretty good brood stock of those those animals out there. So that's why you continue to see them uh, popping up in the hobby. But mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of this species, uh, as far as I know, uh, the the Bergia breeder that I sent these animals to after I realized I couldn't raise them, that is the only known uh, breeding pair at this. At this point within the hobby uh, that I'm aware of, and, now you and, had
0: tried for a little while, and I know you go into detail on this in the article, so we don't have to go real far, but you had tried to raise them and had problems, and you contacted somebody that you know was a little bit more skilled at this and and had uh, had them try
1: Yes, um I tried for about forty five days, and uh, yeah. I'm, you know I'm in school right now, and I just I, I didn't have the time needed to to, to dedicate to these these animals. And I felt it was in the best interest of the animals to get them to somebody that could take care of them. And uh, so uh, Yvonne is the person that's now trying to raise them. And sh- and she, uh, I talked to her a few days ago, and she she does have some of the babies up to a, I, I think about forty-five or fifty days now.
0: Oh, okay. Well, and, that and sounds like some progress.
1: So yes, the, that that's the good news. The, the bad news is that uh, the larger one that uh, I are initially captured is is no is, is now too old to effectively reproduce. So oh, we're we're now dependent upon these babies getting old enough in order to breed so that, that she can continue to try to raise it uh, to right. get new new eggs and continue to to raise them. So um, at this point with 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 such a, a fragile brood stock, I would recommend that if if anybody uh, comes across Either one of these or a pair of these or, or more in, in their in their reef tank that they really try to get them to Yvonne or or another local burgia breeder, so you get somebody that 's got you know more more knowledge in in raising them and better than, chances to help the hobby build yeah. up a broodstock of them yes, exactly yes
0: now yeah I think it 's important that you know that you comment that there 's a a lot of time needs to go in these to be successful, so uh, if you do find these or even if you find two and you, you were to attempt to breed them, it's important to understand that, you know, like breeding just about any type of marine animal, uh, fish or seahorses or anything like that, it's not something that you can just do passively. It takes a lot of time to go into that. And unless you are, uh, you know, skilled enough and have the time to dedicate to this, it's probably something that you should pass on to, to someone just because it's, you know, it's it's a new thing to the hobby and, uh you know the supply of these is is still low at this point.
1: Yes, and and um, it's just unfortunate that the lifespan of, of these animals appears to be fairly short. Right. Um, but you know if if people get them in their in their shipment and, and they find a couple of small ones that aren't that aren't full grown yet, they can give it a shot, and and they'll they'll still have some time. Um, but it. Don't take too long because uh, you want to be able to get them to somebody with more experience if you can't do it initially.
0: Gotcha. Now, that, that kind of leads into the next question that I had for you is, um, it, you know, if I'm a hobbyist and I just bring home, you know, 50 pounds of live rock and two weeks later I'm doing my normal nightly inspection that I know most uh, reef keepers do, and I see one of these in my tank on my glass or on a rock, what do I do? What, what, what's, what should we do?
1: Well, um, th- these are pretty fragile animals, so you don't want to just go and try to grasp them with your hand. Um, I would recommend, like, a, if they're on the glass, just use a, a credit card and, and, you know, very carefully lift up their foot and then put them into a cup or a bowl. Like and then a specimen
0: container them. or something.
1: Yeah. yeah, and you can remove them from the tank that way. If they're on live rock, uh, they can hold on pretty tight to that, so you might want to try a turkey baster at their... At, Pointed at the base of their foot mm-hmm. until they give up their hold, and then capture them again in the in the specimen cup or cup. Gotcha. And, and these should be what, put into. Um, what what I did was uh, I I just had a a, a standard twelve ounce solo plastic cup that I put them in, and then I had a spot in my sump uh, where I could put the cup about halfway into the water so it could maintain the same temperature as the system.
0: So you were like floating and the it, cup in there or something.
1: Yeah, but I was always I put it in a spot where I could make sure the cup wouldn't tip over and then right. it would get released back into the system. Right, right. And um, at that point, uh, if a hobbyist were to find one of these, they can put in the put it in a cup and in a secure location where it can stay the same temperature as the reef tank,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then they can get online and uh, and of course take some pictures uh, and get online with those pictures and try to get try to confirm if it if it really is. Uh, a, a spirilla or or if it's another another species
0: right, and many of us and know then, that it's a lot easier to photograph something in a cup than trying to get a picture of it in the dark on a rock
1: <laughs> yes yes the, that's where uh, I actually made a a i took a plastic cup and I cut it down to only about one inch tall mm-hmm. and just put a little bit of water in just enough where the animal's comfortable within the water and then take pictures. Cl- up close, and, that, right. and that's how I got a lot of the pictures in my article, is that you know, very up-close shots with, with really not a very good digital camera.
0: Mm. Well, that's, that's a good idea right there. Uh, so now, you know, beyond what you've shared already, uh, you know, what has this experience taught you? I know, like you said, that you, you're you're not a nudibranch expert, but, you know, after I went through the article and with the information that you pro- provided, it seems like you, you've gotten a lot out of this. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I did get a lot out of this. Uh, you know, beyond the satisfaction of, of researching and learning about these uh, amazing creatures, um, it has it has taught me a little bit of a negative side. Uh, in that, it seems that uh, hitchhikers have seem to have a bad rap with, within the uh, the online forums. Yeah, and because and I I got my initial pictures, which weren't the best. Um, and I put my pictures online, and as soon as the word nudibranc was mentioned... Everybody
0: started every, freaking I, out. I, everybody started freaking out. they oh, they're going to eat all your
1: corals. They're, they're <laughs> And I got a lot of comments that, oh, these are really, really bad. You need to get rid of them. And I, I was thinking about it at that point, especially since I was dealing with the serolanids at the same time. I was, you know, I was getting a little overwhelmed, but I, I kept on to it. And then once I heard nudibranc, and then I narrowed it down to an aeolid, I read Dr. Schmick's article about aolid nudibrox in the in the aquarium, and how most of them will consume, you know, zooanthids or or another type of coral. And, and so again, uh, it, that wasn't the intention of his article to be negative, but it's just you know the vast majority of them right. are going to be eating something you don't want them to eat. Right. Um, but then. Uh, I, I, I kept on to them in the little cup in the sump, and they were you know they were very happy. And and then I had one person online say, hey, you know, those might be Spirilla, and they could be pest anemone consumers. I'm oh, like, okay. oh, okay. And so I looked into it a little more, and I got some better pictures, and, um, you know, it, it turns out, and then I got some, uh, I put a call out to, because luckily I don't have any pest anemones in my tank, but I put a call out to, some of my fellow Marsh members, and, and was able to get a supply of anemones. And they as soon as I put them in the cup, they're like, hey, dinner, let's yeah, go. Awesome. <laughs> and, and so at that point, you know, it, it, just, made, it just made me realize that, that people in the hobby, when they're getting these hitchhikers in on their tanks, you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, if, if it's in an area where you can easily take it out of your tank, that's great, do it, because you don't know what it is. Right. But put put it in a little cup and put it in your sump and and you know just let them stay there for a few days while you try to get some identification with the with the pictures.
0: Right, because many people would you know somebody would say oh it's bad get rid of it and the first thing they would do is pull it out of their tank and and freeze it or kill it in some way and you know I think it's important you know what you mentioned and it's something that I I, I preach on the sh- on this show all the time is you know. Do your research. I mean, just because one person tells you something doesn't mean it's true. And even with the stuff that, you know, I say and that we talk about on the shows, you know, don't take everything, you know, as gospel. Do do your homework. Do a little bit of research. And, you know, your situation is a perfect example of that. You had many, many people tell you that this is a, a horrible, bad hitchhiker and it's going to destroy your reef tank. And after you put in a little bit of time and research, it turns out that you might have found... You know a nudie brink that's very that could be very beneficial to you know to the hobby as a whole
1: yeah and and I don't think that I'm you know any different than the average hobbyist and, and other than that I took a little bit of time to, to do research, but I think a lot of hobbyists do do their research I don't want to you know right. sound negative um, but i'm not any you know i'm not spe- more special than anybody else. I just got some live rock. I, I found something on it, and I went out and identified it. And I think if more people go out and do that, then we're we're gonna we're gonna find some other animals that could be beneficial to the hobby.
0: Mm-hmm. And it brings up some other good points that you know, when I did the show uh, back a few months ago with Stephen Pro about some of his topics, uh, this just re- reiterates the same things that we were talking about there that you know, you don't have to be a scientist or a professional researcher or anything to to learn this information. A lot of the information's out there in, you know, scientific publications. You just kind of got to piece it together. And it's, you know, if you've got a little bit of time and the willing, you know, the enjoyment of the hobby and the willing to do this, you, you know, anybody can sit down and and put together this type of information. And I I think it's something that, you know, more people should be a
1: little bit more willing to do from time to time. Yeah, and... I think it's great that we got to talk about this because there there was little bits and pieces of information about this about this critter out there, but you know it was in very old threads or in yeah. websites that are falling apart. And I think by by doing this, we can bring it to the forefront and have people watching out for these. Because I, I really stress that if 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 people think they've gotten one of these, that we need to try to get it to a breeder. Uh, Yvonne or somebody else who's more local to them right? and really try to see if we can increase the brood stock on these.
0: Yeah, and you know what some of the other important things, and this is something that uh, we talk about uh, every so often at the at our forums uh, at Talking Reef, is uh, a lot of the information is out there and readily available on the internet. The problem is, is it's usually not in a reef aquarium hobby format. And it, they're usually in, you know, like I said, scientific publications or online journals or stuff like that. There's there's usually the documentation out there, but people have a tendency, you know, and I mean, understandably, they're looking at reef forums and, and reef sites and, you know, they struggle to find this stuff when, in fact, it's a lot of it's out there in masses and, you know, in certain scientific papers and stuff like that. And So it's something important to, to think about. It. If you are one of these people and you're looking for this type of information and you just can't seem to find it, you know, try popping into some of these you know various scientific journals and stuff, and you might be able, you might get lucky there
1: yeah there and there's you know I just went to my my university library where I'm studying and briefly popped in there, did a little keyword search once I had the the genus and species name, and it popped up quite a few articles and and there's actually been some pretty interesting research done on these animals, not on their reproduction but on uh, their consumption of anemones and how they use the stinging cells and everything. It was, and there were, some of it was some pretty interesting reading.
0: Right, yeah. Definitely.
1: Well, um
0: I think that pretty much wraps it up. Is there any other items that you wanted to bring up before we before we wrap the show
1: this section up? No, I th- I think we've pretty much covered everything I wanted to talk about tonight. Uh, this has been a uh, a great experience. Great. Well, I wanted to thank you
0: for taking the time to join us on the Talking Reef podcast, and uh, we'd love to have you back on in the future if you have any other things that you wanted to share.
1: Oh, uh, you're welcome. Uh, thanks for having me, Rob. And, uh, you know, if, if I come up across any other observations or little critters in my tank, I'm, I'm definitely going to be looking to get information out if they appear to be beneficial.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Okay, Thanks, Rob. Special thanks to Brian Plankus for coming and talking to us about aylid nudibranchs. Now, don't forget to check out the other reefkeeping articles and highlights at reefkeeping.com. This month, items such as Ozone and the Reef Aquarium, Randy Holmes Farley's third installment in his Ozone series, The Facts of Light, Part 4, Sanjay's fourth part on lighting. This should be a good one. It's going to talk about the variance in color temperatures. And this month's reef slide section is all on pipefish. And also make sure you check out this month's reef keeping top 10 list. This month you're going to get top 10 worst things you've done to support your reefing habit. And that's all for this month's reef-keeping edition of the Talking Reef Podcast. Make sure you check out the Talking Reef website at www.talkingreef.com and subscribe to the podcast feed to hear all the great Talking Reef podcasts. I'll talk to you next month with another great interview.